Uh, last week, we began a, a series uh, of sermons uh, that's beginning to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the capital city of the empire called Rome. Um, it's, in, in Christian terms, it's kind of like one of the big ones. Because what Paul is doing is beginning to, he, he's never been to this church. He's not a church he knows, so he's not actually going to deal with problems very much in the church. Often what Paul does in all his epistles, his letters, what he does is he normally outlines some theology and then deals with their problems. But what he does with Romans is very different because he's outlining really what it means to be a Christian at all. And it's quite a dense letter, and some of you have been Christians a long time, and you'll have read it, and there'll be, unless you are remarkable, you will have read that letter from time to time, going, I have no idea what you're on about. Do you know what I mean? I have no idea. I'm just going to skim over this. I have no idea. And so the danger is what we do is we, we just take little bits, the good bits, and uh, unline those bits, and, but the big picture is a bit more difficult to get. But what Paul is wanting to do is to say to a really small group of people, in a massive city, you have surrendered your life to Jesus. So the two things. Firstly, you've really got to understand what that means. So he's not actually preaching that they might become Christians. They've become Christians, and he's going, you've got to get it. You've got to understand the, the depth of what you've done. Because you are agents of a very different kingdom in the middle of Rome. Rome has got its own ways of doing things. It's got its own ways of mapping out life. But actually, you've been called to live very differently. And last week, we did some work on that introduction. And we're going to look at the second half of the first chapter. I wonder if uh, you were going to start telling someone why being a Christian is good news. How would you begin? How would you begin? Well, there's two ways, aren't there? Classically, you can either begin by saying God loves you and he's got a great idea and plan for your life and he'd love you to be part of that. Or you can begin by going, it's rubbish around here, isn't it? <laughs> it's really, we're in a mess. And it's interesting that when Paul begins to outline what does it mean to be a Christian, he actually begins by saying, almost, are you happy with how things are around here? He actually begins by saying, we're in a mess. Now, I've got to admit, when I, I do this sort of week by week, and most weeks anyway, um, um, I think for some people, if you're not sort of very close to the process, some of you might think, <laughs> some of you might think because you listen, he clearly just gets up on a Sunday morning, perhaps goes for a walk around the park, and then comes back and goes, I know what I'll say. Um, it can look like that sort of informal. But others of you know that actually it takes quite a long time to think through what Paul's saying. But the really big deal is, so what? So, so how's this going to interact with you? And I've got to tell you, this has been one of those weeks where I've struggled to try and make sense this, of this for us. So that you're not just going, oh, so that's what Paul means. But actually, that's what it might mean for us. You can tell me at the end. How well I've done. Actually, you can't. I only want to hear if uh, you think it was brilliant. Um, but I, I thought what I'd do is try and present what Paul's doing through the lens of the fact that I think what Paul does in this passage and throughout Romans, actually, is he presents what I've called four inconvenient truths. Four inconvenient truths. And that's 
For some of you who have been around church a long time, you're going, are you sure it's four and not three? A sermon shouldn't have four points, surely. Um, But four inconvenient truths. So, let's read together from the first chapter of Romans and verse 18. I've got to say, folks, that on the whole, when we go through Romans, it's going to be probably most helpful for you to get anything out of sermons if you actually come with the Bible so you can read it for yourself. Because otherwise, you're listening to complex, dense material that's kind of difficult to get a hand on. So, um, so bring your phone. You can always play solitaire if the sermon gets really boring. Okay, so what Paul's doing in this little patch of Scripture... What he's doing in this piece, he's got, it's an argument that he's playing out all the time. So he starts with this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And, and it's kind of like all the time you're hearing this echo of a question, how? Well, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this... God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, I think that's an encouraging message. I don't think I've got anything else I need to add. Uh, Just go and uh, you can see now why it's sort of like, well, how do we make sense of that? Because it's kind of like, this is just bleak, bad news. Well, my first inconvenient truth is this. And I use the word inconvenient because actually this is not necessarily what we want to hear. It's an inconvenient diagnosis. Imagine this. Imagine that you know there's something wrong with you. You just feel it. You know sometimes when you just know there's something wrong, but you're not sure what it is, and you've Googled it, and you still can't find what it is, but you know there's something not right with you, and you go to a doctor. What do you want your doctor to do? 
Do you want your doctor to sit before you and do you want her to say to you, well, I think you'll be okay. I'm not sure. Is that the sort of doctor you want? Or do you want a doctor to say, actually, there's something quite serious here, but I think we can deal with it. In other words, do you want a doctor who's going to simply massage how your fears are Or do you want a doctor to actually look at you and go, no, you're right, you've got something serious going on here. The first truth that Paul presents to those Christians in Rome is, unless we face up to the truth that we're in a mess and the mess is sin, we're never going to be able to take any steps forward. Some of you will know that in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is where you admit your helplessness. And in AA, it's bef- unless you get to that point, there's no way forward. Because everything else you're trying to do is, is try and pretend you're doing okay. And Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they have that idea that unless you begin by saying, I've got nothing Ian used a phrase, I've got nothing to bring to the table, I, I cannot do this, then you're not ready for a solution. Paul begins in this passage by simply saying, we're in a mess, and the mess is sin. So what does Paul say? What is the mess? Well, if you look with me, in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all, and he uses two words, the godlessness and wickedness of human beings. He says, that's the problem. That's the problem we've got in Rome. That's the problem we've got in our society. He says, actually, the two things, there's godlessness and wickedness. The godlessness, he talks about, in the terms of God is communicating with people and people are holding God at arm's length. He says, actually, there's that sense that even, even if they've never heard of Jesus, there's that sense that there's something else about life. And he talks about creation revealing God. You might know that feeling, and lots of people know this feeling. You're listening to a piece of music, and suddenly something happens in you. And it takes you literally outside of yourself, and you're moved, and you're going, what's going on there? There's a bigger beauty. Or art does it for some people. You're standing in front of a picture, and suddenly you get a bigger, a bigger, a bigger sense of everything. For most of us, it's like standing in front of the ocean where the waves break in on us and you're leaning on on the railings and you'll stand there forever watching nothing but just getting a sense of your own insignificance or being on a hillside and looking over a valley on a beautiful day when the sun is dappled through the clouds and you're at the top of the hill. This is what it would be like on the 4th of October. And you will be looking over that valley and suddenly you get a sense of, I'm very small here. Or you see the pictures from space, from NASA, and going, wow, we live on a beautiful planet. And I'm very small. And Paul says, when you get those feelings, it's God beginning to haunt you to say, you're not the center of the universe. There's more. 
is a bigger world. It's like Billy Graham years and years and years ago. I don't know if he coined the phrase, but he certainly used it a lot. He said, you've got this God-shaped hole inside you. You've got this longing and yearning for something. And it's God that keeps knocking at your heart, saying, there's got to be more than this. And Paul says, but the problem is, we live in an age, he says in the first century, where we want to keep that at arm's length. And then secondly, he talks about the wickedness. You act in ways that conflict with God's purpose. And in a sense, what he is doing, he's replaying the story of Eden, the creation story. Do you remember right at the beginning in the garden, what was the big temptation? Firstly, the snake came to Eve and said, you can't trust God. God is not trustworthy. The, you know, the story goes where the temptation of eating the fruit and the snake goes and says, oh, God's just trying to keep you really limited. You can't trust God. And secondly, Adam and Eve then do what seems best to them. And in a sense, what Paul is doing, and I think what he's doing, actually, it's almost like he's doing it all the way through Romans. He's unpacking. What's this history? How's the history gone wrong? And he begins with creation dissolving. And I think that's why he, he begins by saying, look, it's gone wrong in the most intimate relationships that we have, sexual ethics. At different times and different places, we've talked about sexual ethics in church. I'm, I'm not wanting to do that here. I simply think that what he does is he reminds people of the original, which is where you're created and you find, your, you find unity in the other. For this reason, a man will leave his, uh, his parents and will be joined to a woman, a wife. The other, the different. And here he's going, but everything's so skewed that you don't go after the other, the different, you go after the same, the self. This is not the final word about homosexuality, but it's one perspective that Paul just drops in here. He says it actually has skewed so much of our most intimate lives. In a sense, what Paul is saying is everything is broken. And you know that bit when I read at the end um, where, um, you know, we have that long list from verse 29 onwards of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, etc., etc. It's, it's like a litany of disaster, isn't it? It's like, gosh, are we really like that? Well, ask Andy Murray this week. What so ask Andy Murray, what sort of world do we live in? Earlier in the week, Andy Murray came out in favour of independence from Scotland. And what that did was open an avalanche of what he has called vile tweets because people have disagreed with him. It's not just that, Andy, we think you're wrong. It's not going to be best for the country. It's actually now just the a, 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 an onslaught of personalized, horrible, vile. Ask Mary Beard, the Cambridge historian. Ask her what it's like to be on the end of social media where it's like a, a torrent of 
vileness that floods at you. And who are these people that do this? They're not monsters that you'd never have anything to do with. They're people like us. They're people who have families. They're people who live in our sort of streets. They're people who work in our sort of places. Now, the danger of this is we go, oh, it's an horrible world, isn't it? It's an horrible world. Well, I've got to tell you, if you come next week, Paul's going to say, oh, by the way, it's you as well. Um, so be careful you don't tut tut the rest of the world. Be careful you don't tut tut the rest of the world. The first thing he says then is, we're in a mess. He's not pointing at individual Roman people. He's just saying, as a society. And I think it's fair to say that 20 centuries on, we'd still say, we're not what we want to be. The second inconvenient truth is this. It's God's wrath and it's God's judgment. Now, I've got to say that as a church, we don't really talk about the wrath of God very much, but that's how Paul begins this chapter, this, this um, section of the chapter. The wrath of God is being revealed. We think that's going to put people off and, um, and we'd rather talk about the love of God because the wrath of God sounds frightening. In fact, it sounds Old Testament-ish. And we sort of, you know, we have the idea of people with uh, billboards going around uh, the streets saying, the wrath of God is upon you, repent. And we all look at them and go, ah, they're a bit of a nutcase. But Paul actually begins this and goes, do you know what? God's angry. Now, when we think about anger, you've got at least two sorts of anger. And this isn't very sophisticated, but you've got at least two sorts of anger. You've got the anger that some of you have, I'm guessing some of you, but clearly it's not for me, but for you probably, um, the, the sort of anger when someone cuts you up. Now, clearly none of you ever have that, um, and you're all very gracious and go, hey, it's not that big a deal, get in line, it's not, I've been waiting here 30 minutes, the fact that you come up on the, hard, on the, 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 fast, show, uh, the fast lane and just dipped in at the last two minutes, that is not a big problem. That's probably your reaction. Maggie. <laughs> Probably. There's an anger that goes, how dare they? Because it's an affront to me. That sort of anger. The wild anger. The outburst anger. The anger that knows no limit. That's not the anger that's being referred to here when you talk about God's anger. It's, I think, and this is an emotive thing, but go with me. When you heard about uh, Rochdale and 1,400 children being abused systematically. Were you angry? You should have been. Because they've taken something that created, cared for. They've, they've, they crossed the bounds. It's not, it's not cutting me up. It's not about me. I haven't got any stake in Rochdale, if I'm honest, but I'm angry that some adults would go... I value you so little. So, you are wor so worthless to me. I'll just use you. And I think actually what you've got is that sort of anger of a God who goes, this world is my created world. I love it this much. And I'm angry when people use one another. I'm angry when people de sort of devour one another. I'm angry when the powerful put the weak down. I'm angry when the rich trample on the poor. I'm angry when the weak have no advocate. I want a God like that. I don't want a God who goes, oh, bless them. 
I want a God who looks at the world, who looks at the clear injustice and goes, that's not, I'm angry. And God is angry when he sees that. People will ask you, where's God? And I want to go, God's there and he is mad. And he's not going to talk about it here, but he's going to talk about it in the second chapter. And he's going to say, and one day there will be a day of judgment. But don't you want it? Now, (laughs) the danger is we want it for everybody else, but not for ourselves. (laughs) But it's part of Christian truth. There's a day of judgment. But interestingly, Paul says God's judgment is actually being worked out. And he has this idea, not that there's thunderbolts coming down from heaven against people who do wrong, but actually God has given people over to their own actions. He, he uses that phrase, God gave them over, in three times, 24, 26, 28. It's, it's that same phrase each time. God has given you over to your own desires. It's like the most frightening thing. The world would be, in some ways, a cleaner place and a tidier place if God put a thunderbolt every time someone did something wrong. But that's not the world that God has created. If you set your heart against God, in the end, God will go, okay, go for it. I stand back. Go, do it. You'll, you'll reap what you sow, but I'll, I'll let you go. Scary place. Almost scarier than if you just send thunderbolts. Inconvenient truths. Number one, we're in a mess and it's sin. Number two, God's angry. Third one, an inconvenient solution. Let me go back to uh, the doctor's surgery. I, I don't go to the doctors very often, but um, <laughs> and in a moment you'll understand why. My doctor's pretty good, but you've got to know when you're going to be ill. And you've got to plan ahead to be ill if you want to see a doctor. So like three weeks, if you know you're going to be ill in three weeks' time, you probably will see a doctor if you can make an appointment now knowing that you're going to be ill in three weeks. Anyway, I went um, a few, uh, I think last year sometime, and uh, I got a, an issue. It's not happened for a while, but uh, the inside of my nose gets quite inflamed from time to time, and that makes my nose really sore, and it also makes me feel very self-conscious, if I'm honest. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. If I come in one day and you see I've got a big red hooter, <laughs> can you look somewhere else? <laughs> so I got this problem, and I went to my doctor, who's sitting there, and I said, I've got this problem with my nose, etc., etc., etc. And he went, oh, I get that. He said, what have you tried? (laughs) I said, well, last year I saw one of your other partners and he gave me whatever it was. He said, I'd have never thought of giving you that. (laughs) He said, does it work? I said, no, not really. He said, oh. I said, can you help me? He said, no, not really. (laughs) So then, because I'm thinking, well, that's a failure, I thought, well, while I'm here, I've got a little white patch on my arm here when when I get a tan. I get a little white patch. Now, being a man, I have self-diagnosed myself. That is leprosy. <laughs> All right? <laughs> or at least advanced stage of skin. You know, I've, I've, I've been on Google. I've done this. I know that if you get a patch. So I, I, he's not been able to sort my nose out. <laughs> Actually, I'm now beginning to visualize myself. I've got this big red hooter. 
and a white arm. Um, anyway, with patches on. So I said to him, I, I get these patches. And he said, yeah, I get that. <laughs> and he blew me down. He rolled his sleeve up. He said, look, there they are. I said, have you got leprosy as well then? <laughs> and I said, um, should we worry? He said, I don't think so. <laughs> he was at that point. <laughs> I've not really been back to the doctor since then. Because <laughs> bless him, he's in a worse state than I am. <laughs> See, the truth is that when we're in a mess, and particularly along the line I've just talked about, you don't want someone who's just going to sit down with you and sympathize. They go, yeah, I feel like that as well. You need someone who's going to actually say, how do you get out of this situation? But go back to the analogy. And the analogy will only stretch so far, so bear with me. If they had been able to sort it out, any of this stuff that I've got, it would have meant some intervention. It would have meant something happening that was different than I was dealing with at the moment. And it's the same. Paul actually begins this passage. You know, it's, it's, it's not a standalone passage. It fits with chapter six, uh, the, the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of the epistle. And it starts in chapter 1, verse 16, really, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And actually, that phrase, the righteousness of God, is going to be a, a, an echoed... Uh, th- uh, you, you can actually just read through between now and the end of chapter 6. And that phrase comes back time and time again. Paul wants you to think about, how's God dealing with this in his righteousness? God is holy. God's got to actually deal with this. But in chapter 3, verse 20, um, is the end of this passage, actually. It's chapter 1, 18, all the way through to 3.20, really. One long thought, where he said, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Talk about that next week. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. God hasn't given up on the world. We try and avoid the truth. We try and avoid the truth about ourselves. And we try and avoid the truth about our world. And Paul says, God has offered a way out of all the things you feel trapped in. And the way out is Jesus. And the truth is, I think at times we would prefer anything other than Jesus. It would have been... The truth, if Paul had left that and said, if you really want to be happy in the world, then actually just love one another. If you really want to be at peace, have a community where you actually get on well together because you can then retreat from the difficulties of the world. If you really want to get to grips with what's going on in society, try and understand what's going on. If you want to change things, take a pill. Make a law. And at the end, Paul says, this is the inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth is this. It's only in the cross that you can deal not only with what's going on around you, 
but also what's going on in you. God has made a way so that his righteousness, in one sense, it's this, that God doesn't just stay in his anger, but in Christ, in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus said, I'll take all that force on me. And this might sound, it's very difficult to understand and it's very difficult to explain, but it is that invitation. If you trust that Jesus has paid your penalty, you're free. The wrath of God, the anger of God, at a world where people have said, we'd rather be independent of you, is focused in Christ. And he says, if you trust him, you're free. The cross is not simply part of the story. It's the solution to the problem. And what Paul found and what the early Christians found is it was really easy to come into faith like that but then think you've got to try really hard to stay in the faith through your own effort. Or to start condemning other people because they're not doing it quite right either. And I think this is my last point. The inconvenient truth is we are called to live with confidence with all of this truth. We live in a broken world and we are broken people offering the only remedy we know. We are living in a broken world as broken people offering the only remedy we know. We're here in this picture. It's not a matter of you tut-tutting the rest of it. It's actually, truth be known, if we did some self-analysis, we'd start to own up and go, to be honest, there's elements of that in me. Every now and again, some people will say, I get to a state where I just hate myself. You don't need someone to go alongside you and go, oh, you're not as bad as that. They're there. You need someone to say, the only remedy I know for when you feel so trapped is Jesus. Because otherwise we're sitting in the doctor's surgery going, yeah, I feel like that as well. You find anything helps? No, not really. It means we can have a conversation about it, but actually there's no way out of the hole. Jesus comes and goes, I'm the way out of the hole. And you and I both know, if we've been walking with Jesus for a while, this is not a one-off. We find ourselves in that hole more times than enough. Live with confidence. The gospel is the forgiveness that is offered to broken people who know they're broken and they know it's the only remedy. We live in a sin context and we're not immune. That's why when Jesus said, let me teach you how to pray, he said, forgive, pray, forgive us our sins, own up. You're not immune. It's not a tragedy. But also then, forgive those people who sin against you because that'll happen to you too. It's the truth that in the gospel, 
is the only way. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone. It's the only way out. And then the last point, and it's really quick, is we have to live in this world. Now, it's really interesting because one of the things that Christians over the years, long years, some Christians have tried to do in every generation, really, is they've, they've taken kind of read Paul stuff and they've looked around the world and they've gone, it is such an awful world. I think we'd rather create a community where we are completely separate from them. Let's have nothing to do with that world. Early Christians, they did it by taking themselves off into the desert and they created little communities in the desert. Um, and actually, <laughs> this is the truth, often they said, women are a bit of a problem, so let's just have it as men. And um, <laughs> I think that would be helpful. And then they found... This is actually true. And then they found, actually, other men are a bit of a problem. Let's go and live on our own in the desert. And they said, if we can just live on our own in the desert. And then they found, actually, do you know the problem? It wasn't women all along. And it wasn't other men. The problem was me. Christian churches have done it. They've tried to raise these sort of like barricades really high to say, let's have nothing to do with the world. But here's the inconvenient truth. We live in the midst of it. We're affected by it and we live in the midst of it. And you can't just walk around judging and condemning everybody else. Though it's easy to. And thinking that somehow we're a little better than everybody else. Actually, the truth is, we're with everybody else. But we just were remarkably blessed that someone came and whispered in our ear, the remedy is Jesus. You were just starving people who somebody told where you can find bread. That's all that happened. That's the only difference. Now Paul, throughout the letter, and certainly towards the end of the letter, is going to talk about navigating this world. He's got some practical stuff that he's going to tell you how to deal with and uh, some principles about how do you live in this world that's really quite complicated. But today, today's enough. Today's enough to say to some of you, God's wanting to get your attention. In fact, God is getting your attention. Remember that stuff I talked about, the, the waves and the... Sometimes the very fact that you're in a context like this is God's way of saying, Oh, you, I, 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 want, I want you to take notice of me. And for you, if that's the case, a God that you're not really that convinced about or sure about, it's a, a context in which God says, Oh, you, I, I, I want to do business with you. I want you to give in to me. I want you to live with me. I want you to live for me. And it's through the cross. I want you to trust Jesus. For the rest of us, it's that sense of, we think that's sort of like Christianity 101. We've done that bit. It's the basic stuff. And now we've moved on to more sort of complicated things. But actually, we don't. We keep going back there and going, do you know what? I'm still affected by all of this. And I still need to come to the cross. For it's the only remedy for the hole we find ourselves in so very often. And then, and we'll do it. You'll take communion, and in our church, this is the way we do it. Um, some folks will come and uh, they'll serve us from here.
and you'll be invited to come and, and you'll queue up with people and you'll come to the front and they'll offer you the bread and they'll offer you some of the juice and then you'll wend your way back. It'll probably one of the last things that we do as a church this morning in this part of the service. And what we're doing to you, what we're doing to you, <laughs> what, we're <gonna> do, <laughs> what we're doing with you is we are saying to one another, come to the table without a sense of, yes, I'm worthy. Come and go, do you know what? I mess up in so many different ways that I never get further than the inconvenient truth that I'm not as good as I thought I was. And someone that you may or may not know will offer you the bread that will say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. It's for you. And you have the opportunity to take that and let it become part of you. And they'll offer you the, the cup and they'll say, that cup points to, reminds us of, it's a symbol of the blood of Jesus that covers our sin. Take it and drink it. And you will walk back. And symbolically, you'll walk back in the direction of the door. Because in about 40 minutes time, most of us will be out of the door. Back into home. Back thinking about the rest of the day back thinking about tomorrow and getting ready with the confidence that the cross has said it all. I could go on, as you now know, but I will not. Enough. Enough. We're going to pray together. I wonder if I can ask you to stand. It might help. If you can. If you find it difficult to stand, then don't. But if you can stand, then, uh, then stand. If you find it difficult, don't worry. But let's just stretch and recognize that once again we come back to the old, old story the, the only story that gets us out of the hole we're in Lord, thank you for the cross thank you that in the cross the righteousness of God was satisfied that his own son paid the price so that we could be free Lord, this morning we would want to say we trust Jesus we may not understand it all, but what we do understand is that things are not right around here. We understand that sometimes things are not right in us. We understand that sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves and we don't know the way out. Lord, we understand the feeling of feeling trapped. And Lord, this morning we come and we pray that you will break into our darkness and you would flood us with your light as we trust Jesus, who has paid the price for our sins. We may not know everything, Lord, but we know things are not right around here. And we want to be part of the people who go, we don't understand everything, but we found a remedy that changes our heart. And we pray it for our families and those that we love. We pray it for our friends. We pray it for those acquaintances that we work with. We pray for our neighbors that they might somehow hear the remedy from us. But it's not a secret, but it's a mystery that's been made known. Lord, use as we pray for your glory. In the name of Jesus.